Hi, and welcome to Hope for the Family, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. In this series, recovered family members share how they've been able to find peace and freedom as the loved ones of alcoholics and addicts through interviews and sharing their stories. For more information about our family support group, including weekly meetings, please visit magdalenhouse.org forward slash family. We're so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Okay. Hello, everyone. This is Hope for the Family a podcast from the Magdalene House. My name is Stephanie, and I'm here to interview Judy from our family support group. Judy, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us about yourself and give us a little bit of background and what led you into a situation where you would be in a family support group? Sure. Um, Yes, my name is Judy, and I have an alcoholic daughter. I grew, I I became a part of the Magdalene House Family Support Group when my own daughter was a client in the house. And at that time in my life, I was very overwhelmed, baffled, angry, frustrated, and living in a deep, deep state of despair. And it was suggested to me that I um, attend the Family Support Group. And that was about six years ago. And I actually have never left. It was at this meeting where I learned that alcoholism is a disease. And I learned how the disease affects the uh, body, mind, and spirit. And met wonderful people in, in the family support meeting, many times attending, trying to understand the counterintuitive messaging that I was told that was very counterintuitive what I was compelled to do as a mom, I finally asked someone to be my sponsor and started to work the steps. And um, it it was through uh, having a wonderful, wonderful sponsor and working the steps that I was able to find a path forward for my life, whether my daughter was drinking or not, and only to discover that that was the best thing I could do for my daughter. In terms of growing up, I was not exposed to alcohol, alcoholism at all in my immediate family. I heard about alcoholism existing on both sides of my extended family, but I had never witnessed uh, an alcoholic in the state of being deeply affected by the disease. I had never seen it. And when I did see it in in my daughter, it was very, very scary to me. And I was horrified. And I perceived that as a reflection on me, as I had failed as a mom in some way that led to this, that I was either too strict or too permissive or there was something that maybe I did that wasn't right. And my entire self-worth revolved around my family and my children. My ego was very much wrapped up into how my children were perceived by by others. And when alcoholism was um, evident in my family, 
I was embarrassed and I was determined to squelch it, to, to, to rid my daughter of this disease. And I set upon doing so with many attempts that were all my plan, not her plan, all about my, my wishes for her. She never asked for help. And through that process, we had, I had really created a, a very stressful relationship between the two of us. It was a difficult, difficult mother-daughter relationship. And it really was my doing because I did not know it was a disease and I failed to accept my daughter for who she was. And I was, I thought I had to have the power to change her and so that I could have the family that I thought I always would have that looked a certain way. I had expectations of what my family was supposed to look like. And that was really my self-centered attempt to um, cure my daughter of which after many, many years, I, I failed. <laughs> I just failed at it. And I then finally learned that I did not have the depth and weight. I was powerless over her disease and that she needs to find her own solution. And she, and I needed to let her figure this out on her own. Yeah. I, I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, whenever I was listening to your story and for those who do not know, uh, you worked the steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, correct? That's correct. Okay. And whenever I heard you reading, I heard you replacing alcohol with like obsession or obsessive or can you just explain like what it is like can you just explain like it from that perspective like the obsessing and all of that in relation to the big book yes so in the big book throughout the book it's referencing the alcoholic in, ter in terms of being having an obsession of the mind to thinking that it's going to be different this time and, and, and taking a drink and having the consequences. And even though there's remorse for the consequences after a spree, and, and even though an alcoholic will say, I'm not doing that again, the spirit becomes restless and irritable and discontent. And the mind begins to obsess about alcohol because of um, they want ease and comfort. comfort. And even though I'm not alcoholic, I was doing exactly the same thing, wanting ease and comfort, desperately wanting ease and comfort from the fact that my daughter was most likely drinking. She wasn't answering my phone calls or my text. She was not communicating. I was very, very much full of fear. And even though I went to rescue her many, many times without any uh, without accomplishing anything long-term, I could not stop doing it. I was obsessed with her drinking to the point that I was unable to see the rest of the person. I was unable to appreciate the rest of my daughter and her, her strengths, her talents, her her, her sweetness, um, her pretty voice. I mean, everything else was just, 
didn't exist in my mind because I was just fixated entirely on the alcoholism. And um, it was for me an absolute obsession of the mind. My, my alcoholic daughter noticed it. My husband certainly noticed it. And they both said to me, if you don't stop this, if you do not stop despairing, you are going to kill yourself. You are going to die from this. The stress and the anxiety that I internalized because of my obsession was depleting me of my joy, of my energy, making me physically exhausted. And so it truly was an obsession, just like an alcoholic would have an obsession of the mind with alcohol, which is why the solution for us is exactly the same as for the alcoholic. I love it. So you saw yourself in the big book, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's so cool to me. I wanted to ask you too, you mentioned having three character traits from whenever you were little and how they manifested later in life. Can you talk to us about those? Sure. Um, so um, the first one that I think I talked about in my uh, story was um, being an excessive worrier. And <laughs> that is absolutely true. I just worried about those that I loved by the, from the time I was little. I worried if my parents went out and left uh, me alone with a babysitter that, that something might happen to them. I worried when they would water ski and I would see them water ski and I think, oh my gosh, I was just unable to cope with the, that kind of activity. I worried when any uh, family member was not in view that they might not be okay. And that uh, I was, I, my, my, I was nicknamed a worry wart. <laughs> I just worried. And I don't know why I just was sort of born with that character trait. And so when alcoholism was, became a part of my family, that fear-based behavior was uh, on um, just on overdrive. I just lived in a state of worry and fear for my daughter. And so, but that I think stemmed um, to the way I was, you know, born uh, character characteristically. The other one is caretaking. I received a lot of accolades or positive reinforcement for being a caretaker. I took care of my little sister. I wasn't asked to do it, but I made her bed. I folded her clothes. I rubbed her back. I, I was, and again, <laughs> another nickname was applied because it was just such a part of me as, you know, that I was this missy mother all the time caretaking for my younger sister. I thought I was being helpful. It wasn't really until later to allow people to learn how to take care of themselves. And I think that played out in my parenting as well. I was a very efficient, I was always compelled to be an efficient mom. And so I always sort of did too much for my children. I overstepped so that I wasn't allowing them the opportunity to figure things out because I would just swoop in and take care of things because I was good at it and I was quick and efficient. And I thought that that was love. I thought that was being a good mom, but it was overdoing it was overdoing it. And then the, the third one was being a perfectionist. The perfectionist had a lot to do with my ego. I wanted to be perceived as somebody that could do it all, that I could 
keep a pretty home. I could garden. I could cook. I could make flower arrangements. I could make homemade pillows. I could do the draperies. I could sew my children clothes, you know, all these things that I put upon myself to do and try to do well um, and um, always have things appear in my home as, as though it was so perfect was driven by my ego, was driven by how I would be perceived because that is where I, I validated my self-worth. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to those. Or, uh, did the steps help you like identify those and work through those and all of that? Yes, uh, primarily in, in learning that what I was doing was I thought these, these behaviors of worrying about somebody or caretaking or being a perfectionist and having everything just, uh, you know, lovely, lovely was being a loving mom when it actually was entirely self-serving. And so it was through working the steps that I learned that these behaviors were really selfish and self-centered and that it was a twisted kind of love and that loving somebody is sometimes allowing them the opportunity to find their own legs in life, to figure things out on their own, to fail and learn from failing, to to let them know whether they failed or not, that I had confidence in them, that they could do things on their own and figure things out on their own. And yes, it absolutely was the steps that that taught me how to do that, taught me how to let go of the reins. And even when my children became, uh, and I'm really referring to all my children, not just my alcoholic daughter, but in terms of raising a family, you know, even um, as three adult children, it took me the steps to learn how to let go of the reins, to allow them to make their own decisions, right or wrong, not judge them, not always offer the unsolicited advice that I think I know best. I don't know uh, what was best necessarily at all. And that brings me to the spiritual principles. It was in the big book that I heard the expression stated over and over and over, living according to spiritual principles. And I did not know what they were. And then when I read the spiritual principles, I thought I lived according to them. I thought I lived according to those spiritual principles. But it was through the help of my sponsor that helped me to see by putting a mirror in front of me that I was not living according to those spiritual principles. Those principles, um, the one most important one to me is humility because I feel like it takes humility to apply any of the others. And it's not acting out of ego. To think that I knew what was best for my children or I, that I knew how to fix my alcoholic daughter, that I was gonna come, even though plan A, B, and C failed, my next plan was gonna succeed. And if that failed, I was gonna keep creating and finding another plan. And, and I was gonna blame the program that she went to or the doctor or the psychotherapist that it, that they didn't fix my daughter. <laughs> I held on to that arrogant sense of self that I had the power to fix her. And it was through the steps and learning about the 12 spiritual principles and especially what humility is to realize that I could not 
fixed my daughter and that it was in a way arrogant for me to think I could. Thank you for sharing that with us. What do you do if those come up today? Like, do they still come up today? Absolutely. (laughs) I'm practicing this program every day. I'm not perfect. What this program has provided for me is a sense of awareness that I can pretty much catch myself in the act or soon after that I've stepped back into self-will or that I was acting out of my own expectations or my own ego. I, I try to go back, I have to acknowledge it. I have to make an amend for it. But I also know that I need to work harder at this program, that I really need a, a good review of the steps and the 12 spiritual principles and, and how I'm supposed to walk this walk in life. And I do, you know, obviously I do call my sponsor as well and talk to her. And I find that I, I mess up the most with the people that I love the most. It's always with my immediate family members um, that I, I fall short of meeting the living according to spiritual principles. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of disappointing that our own family can be the biggest trigger of those types of behaviors. Um, and maybe I'm not alone in that. It is, it is true for me that um, there, that's where I fall short outside of my family. I'm better at living according to these principles. So you have to admit that. <laughs> yes. And I can definitely relate to that too. My, the ones that I love the most, unfortunately, don't always get the best of me. So thank you for being honest about that for sure. First, I want to ask you, is there any step that, or what step did you have the most significant experience with? So I'm going to say step three and step five. And Cool, because I was going to ask you about step three after this. So <laughs> <laughs> step three was brought tremendous relief to me. It was at that, in that step that I realized that what I thought was my job as a a mom to fix my alcoholic daughter was not my job. And to have that responsibility lifted off of me was freedom to have that trust and reliance on a power greater than myself that if I allowed my daughter to access that power too and got out of the way, that she had the opportunity to recover and then it and that it wasn't my job. So I found a tremendous amount of relief in doing my step three. Also step five, because well I have to I have to um, admit that at first in my step five, I was very argumentative with my sponsor. (laughs) I was still not understanding why as as a mom, where I thought I was doing the right thing for my daughter, why that was not loving my daughter, why that really was harmful to my daughter. And I couldn't let go. And I would say things like, you know, but I did this and I did this and after all I did that and after all I've done for her and then she did this to me. And, you know, I was very still caught up in, in anger and frustration and resentment towards my daughter for after all I've done. And 
my, I had a, a sponsor who was masterful at helping me to see the truth in that, to helping me really see that my motive behind trying to fix my daughter according to my plan and according to my timetable was extremely um, selfish and self-centered. Um, but I did, I did um, when I got through it and I finally saw it and I understood what she was trying to reveal to me, I was ashamed and remorseful and knew that I wasn't going to be that kind of mom anymore. Are you an alcoholic woman in recovery seeking connection? Maggie's Women's Group is a fellowship group for women in recovery to build friendships and connect with the community at the Magdalene House. Maggie's Women's Group is open to any alcoholic woman in recovery, not just Maggie's alumna. To find out how to get involved and connect with us on Facebook, please visit magdalenhouse.org slash maggies-womens-group. Now, I could see how it would be really hard to see, like, how is that not loving my daughter, doing all these things, trying to get her sober, yada, yada, yada. And I'm sure if there's, like, some family members listening, they're probably, like, I'm in the same boat, like, how is that not helping? Can, so can you just explain how all of that is selfish and self-centered and um, hurtful versus harmful? I mean, versus helpful? Yes. Um, okay. So, you know, in, fam in our family support meeting, um, we try to explain this to the loved ones that are coming into our meetings and suffering um, just like I did. And it t it's a process to to... To, to shift one's perspective. It really isn't something that I or anyone else can embrace quickly. It, um, it sort of takes trying to do what we did before many, many times, just like an alcoholic goes out and drinks again and again and again to finally realize it's just not working, that doing the same thing over and over again is insanity. And so- How were those behaviors how are those selfish and self-centered? How are they harmful instead of helpful? Yes. Okay. So it was absolutely taking, it was belittling to my daughter. It was sending her a message over and over again that she was not capable of taking care of herself, that I needed to take care of her, that I needed to fix the problem and that she was, she did not, it was making her feel small and unintelligent, um, like she couldn't think for herself. And she's a bright girl that I knew could be very resourceful, but I never gave her that opportunity. I didn't even allow her to have a voice in what she wanted for herself in her life. Her life was going to look according to the way I wanted it to look. And I stomped on that voice and I harmed her ability to also find her desperation. I cushioned the blow of the consequences and, you know, she came home and I thought that if I was, if I just rubbed her back and made her a cup of tea and cooked her healthy food and we just had a nice chat, well, you know, I'm sorry that happened, but, you know, 
and give her give her my ideas about how she should go about that that was going to be um that she was going to listen <laughs> she was going to listen to me the non-alcoholic it wasn't until i learned about the disease and work steps that I, I i understood that my helping was harmful in that it was robbing her of the opportunity to find her own desperation and access her own higher power to access a power outside of herself that could be her spiritual guide and lead her it towards a, a, a in, start a journey of recovery. And, and I say it's a journey of recovery for both of us. I thought it could be handled with one visit to rehab or just one or just stop drinking. I did not understand that, that just like for me and getting to where I am today was a process. And for my daughter, it's a process and continues to be a process. And just like my spiritual life continues, continues to evolve and grow, I know that her spiritual life also continues to evolve and grow. To be, to insert myself in that, like I did over and over, deprived her of even beginning, even beginning that journey. When I finally got out of the way and finally just let her let her live her life. And I did have to set boundaries, but I let her live her life, make her own decisions. And I never discussed alcoholism with her until she came to me one day, made a really healthy decision for herself and stepped back more into her life in healthy ways, healthy, helpful ways, not healthy, helping in harmful ways. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, Can you talk about boundaries? Because I know that's always like a big thing. Like how, how do you set boundaries? What boundaries are important or what boundaries were important in your journey and recovery? Do you mind sharing about those? Sure. So there's, you know, these boundaries are, there's no uh, right or wrong. Um, The boundaries that are established are, first of all, really um, a surrender to that power greater than myself to, to God or my higher power to intuitively help me to know what, what to do and what is a fair boundary, what and how to set a boundary lovingly. And so that's the first place to go. And also my sponsor and also my community. I knew that I needed to, now that my daughter was an adult, that I needed her to live independent of our home. And so I, I set a boundary and said that she couldn't live with us anymore. And it was incredibly difficult to do that. I had a sponsor and I had people to call that could move me out of fear into a place of faith, a spiritual principle that if I, if I, if I set that boundary and lived in fear, I was not going to hold to that boundary. I needed to set a boundary and move into a place of faith and optimism and to not catastrophize, which was a pattern of mine too. And when I, when I set that boundary, it was amazing to me that it was understood by my alcoholic daughter. There was no pushback. There was absolutely no pushback because I think she recognized too that it was the end of the line and that I, I, I could not allow her to live in our home anymore. 
and she was homeless for um, a period of time. And then for a certain um, length of time, a long time, she was living in, in a situation that was not a safe, healthy situation. But I was really encouraged to not interfere and to stay in faith and not fear. And, but I loved her through it. See, I, I was able to love her, love her because I stopped judging her. I stopped placing any judgment on how she was living her life. I just loved her unconditionally. And in the story in the back of the big book, um, one of the stories which deals with acceptance, it says, one of the lines that I wrote down here in my big book, it says, not to judge others, but to accept them for who they are, not our vision of who they should, who we think they should be. That the boundary, I, I need to embrace um, acceptance with that and faith. And it really was the beginning of her recovery. It really, really was when she started to figure things out on her own. It wasn't instant. It took many, many years, but it was the best thing I ever did. Yeah, I'm sure that was really hard, but also very, very loving and very brave. So thank you for that as well. You talked about getting counterintuitive direction. Uh, can you talk about what yes. was a counterintuitive direction? <laughs> well, one for sure was not letting her come back and live with us. I mean, yeah, um, I had, you know, you know, there was, there was plenty of room for her to live here. And, uh, you know, it, it was, it seemed um, harsh. It seemed cruel. And I'm sure my daughter at the time perceived it at that, like that as well. I, 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 I do think my daughter was traumatized by that boundary. And I'm sure she has her own perspective on that. Even though she didn't push back, I'm sure she has her own story and perspective on that boundary. Other things that are counterintuitive is, for example, if she wasn't coming home by the time I told her to be home, this was high school, college, that I needed that um, as a mom, I should go looking for her, that I should go find her. I should get her and bring her home and get and bring her someplace safe, that that was my job as a mom. And to be told, no, don't do that. That's not your job was bizarre to me. I thought that if my, you know, if my daughter lost a job that, you know, as being a caretaker, a worrying that she wasn't going to have a job and wasn't going to be something that was going to be on her resume to lead her towards the direction in life that I thought she needed to follow. All those behaviors of being a worrier and a perfectionist and a caretaker, I would involve myself in in that and to it's very it was very counterintuitive to me to not be involved to not be involved and sometimes you know I still struggle with I still as a parent struggle with when I'm crossing that line when I have adult children when I offer my opinion about a decision they made or or not and I really have to go back to my program all the time because sometimes it, there's a fine line be between guiding, being guiding your children and then telling your child what to do. Or it's parenting without judgment or parenting, maybe you're offering a point of view, but not having an expectation attached to that point of view, I guess is, is 
what I'm trying to say. And so it takes practice to, to navigate that as a parent where it's not overstepping, but still being available and still being a, a, a resource for them and still being a support for my children, but not overstepping their boundary of starting to insert myself in how they choose to live their life. And it's a delicate line. And I, I still sometimes am challenged by that. And so other types of counterintuitive behaviors would be certainly like during when my daughter was alcoholic, you know, I was online finding the next 30 day rehab or IOP, or I thought that was my job as a mom, that it was very counterintuitive for me not to be doing the research, finding the program, calling the place and lining, putting the plan in place, lining it up, driving her there, taking her there and telling her, you need to do this. You are going to do this. Well, she had no choice in the matter. She was not invested in the decision or the choice. And so of course it was not going to succeed. And I didn't understand that, but logically now I see why, why would I expect it to, for my plan to be successful when she wasn't even a part of the plan. I was just telling her what I thought she needed to do for herself. But again, that's what I thought my job was. That's what I thought I was supposed to do as a mom and to not be engaged like that, to not be doing that and be told to stop was very counterintuitive to my, my behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to ask you about the third step prayer because I I love what you said about the about the word care. So do you mind first reading us the third step prayer and then talking about it? Okay, so I'll read the prayer. It says, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help by thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. So this is, talks about thy will in contrast to my will. And my will was my doing things my way, um, living in a state of self-propulsion entirely out of ego. Living according to thy will is a humbling or a surrender of myself to a power greater than myself or to God that where I allow God to intuitively lead me through each day so that I am acting of service to others. So thy will, I, um, I like to relate this oftentimes to the Lord's Prayer, where it says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I really believe that thy will is bringing heaven to earth each day in our little words, acts, and deeds. And it, it asks us to do that. In the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is this place that we perceive as peaceful and loving. And that's what we're trying to create for ourselves and others while we're here on earth. And so we access that 
request, thy will to create heaven on earth. And when we fall back into thy will or, or, or my will, I'm creating hell on earth in my life and for others. It's not, it is creating, it is creating a, a, a bit of hell and it can be in something I say or something I do or, but it is acting in contrast to thy will when I fall back into my will. And the third step prayer reminds me of that. And so does the Lord's prayer. I love that. I think it is so beautiful. Can you talk real quick about the word care? Didn't you say something about care? Yes. Let me go to that this step. Um, the third step, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So that word care, care of God told me that if I let go of this, this job description that I thought I had to fix my daughter from her disease of alcoholism, that I was going to be okay, that I was going to be cared for by God, and that my daughter was going to be cared for too. However, that looked like it was, she was going to be cared for too. So it's making a decision to turn my will and my life over to his care and no longer depending on my own self-will or my own living according life in my own through my own self-propulsion creating hell <laughs> hell on earth and hell in other people's lives so that it's um i i it was a reminder to me that i was going to be okay that once i made that decision that i was going to be cared for and that it wasn't scary to me to let go of those reins that i was going to be cared for and and i was going to be guided at each moment of each day if i accessed that power and i was going to be okay because i was going to be cared for yeah i love that too how is the relationship with your daughter today how is she my daughter with my my the relationship with my daughter is wonderful she's she's doing well very well she is she lives in sober living and she's been living in sober living for about three years. This is a lifestyle choice that she's made that she feels right now that she needs that structure and accountability and community. And it's working very well for her. She is so proud of me for getting help for myself. It took a tremendous amount of responsibility off her shoulders when she saw my pain, which only served to make her feel worse than she already felt about this disease. And so when I was able to function as a, as a happy, functioning, joyful person, she was really grateful for that. And it was one less thing she had to worry about. And she could just focus on her own um, journey um, towards sobriety. She we, she has her program, I have mine. And the neat thing is that although our programs don't intersect at all, we do have conversations about the steps, about our higher power, about the design for living. And it's, 
it's a wonderful way to connect with her. So she is, we have a very healthy relationship now. She's entirely back in my life, um, but back in my life in terms of my wonderful daughter and accepting her unconditionally. And she is a 31 year old adult that is living in another state. She lives in Maine. I live in Texas. We, when she needs some support, whatever that might look like, I, I know how to address it. I know that it's not just an answer. It's just not a reaction that there's a, there's a process that I can go through to come to a healthy decision about how we move forward. So yes, she's doing wonderfully. And I am really, really grateful to this program for restoring my relationship with my daughter. Whether she's drinking or not, I can have that relationship. Oh, that's so good. Uh, what is one of the biggest gifts recovery has given you? An entire perspective on how to live my life. And, a, and an entire, it has given me a, an outline or a program or a structure for how I am to engage with all people, not just my alcoholic daughter, but all people. It truly is a design for living. And it has opened my eyes to, to the world of addiction that prior to this, I didn't understand and only judged. It has has introduced me to the most wonderful, wonderful people, both um, the loved ones of alcoholics and alcoholics, who um, I have the deepest respect for, who embrace our recovery journey and, and work this program. I have I have a toolbox of of where I can go when I find myself falling off the program or where I find myself in trouble or falling back into a place of fear or despair, I, I have a toolbox of which I can go to, to help me be okay again. And, and I did not ha have any of that prior to working, reading the big book and working the 12 steps. So I really believe that the 12 steps is for everybody. It's just not for the loved ones of alcoholics. It's not just for alcoholics. The 12 steps is truly a design for living for everybody. And the 12 spiritual principles are, is, are principles for everybody. And if everybody could embrace the, this design for living and these principles, what a beautiful planet we would have. Yes, I totally agree. And I love your passion for the program and for the steps. It's so, it's so amazing. We are getting to the top of the hour. So my final wrap up question is just, if you could only say one thing to the family member or loved one who is listening, what would you want to say to them before we get off? I would want to say to them that they're not alone, that, that there are um, people um, that understand exactly what you're going through and understand your fear and your despair and your confusion about the disease of alcoholism. And I just really encourage you to 
find support for yourself and it's available through it's available through the Magdalen House Family Support Group and through these for many resources on the website. I just want to give people hope for themselves and for their alcoholic that there there is always there is hope it um, that you that as a loved one you can be okay whether your alcoholic is drinking or not, it's just getting the help and learning how to love someone unconditionally and, and allow them to find their solution and to lovingly set those boundaries. And I just urge these family members to, to pick up the phone and call anybody at family support because we're happy to talk to them at any time and, and, and give them some help. Okay, you can find those uh, phone numbers for family support on our website. They have their phone numbers up there. So they really do want you to call. Uh, thank you so much, Judy. This has been so wonderful. For everyone listening, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review, like, share, subscribe so we can help more alcoholics and their loved ones. And I will talk to you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. This podcast is from the Magdalen House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.